Hi, everyone. Welcome to Second Rail. Talk about transforming education by and for people playing unique roles in the organization, service, delivery, and inspiration of learning. Uh, I'm John Heinz. I'm the guy who beat Anderson Cooper to having a kid by three months. And I'm thrilled to have a guest today who gives me at least a plausible excuse for mentioning my son, since uh, my husband and I were inundated with genetic testing options for our uh, our sperm and our donor's eggs and a, a bunch of matrices of the combinations of those. But let me back up a minute before I get into that. For those who listen regularly, you'll know that one of my recent guests was Shelly Cummings, who's an old friend and a longtime genetic counselor. Uh, as with many of my conversations, the result of taking a dive into Shelley's life and her work has prompted me to be more interested in the subject, not less. And that led me on a path from uh, Shelley to today's guests. So Janice Berliner is a genetic counselor. She's an author of novels and a director of courses. Her workday life is program director of graduate programs in genetic counseling at Bay Path University. Uh, and her nighttime life is writing page turners. So I'm really excited to have you here, Janice. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, I'd like to start by asking a little bit about my guest's uh, personal education background. Oh, sure. I have a bachelor's degree in biomathematics from Rutgers University and a master's in human genetics and genetic counseling from the University of Michigan. Was biomathematics brand new when you did it? That's an interesting question. I don't know. <laughs> it was basically what I could do when I couldn't get through organic chemistry and needed to change my major from biology and needed to Got use it. the courses that I had already. So it just kind of happened okay. rather. Like so many of our <laughs> education and career decisions, it was the life thrust us in a direction. I get it. Right. We were going. That's great. Well, tell, well let's start with the big question. Um, you're a genetic counselor. You wrote a novel. Why did you write a novel? Yeah, you know, it's not something that I had yearned to do my entire life. I mean, I, I always liked writing and I thought I was reasonably good at it. And I'm actually a, a fairly good editor as well. But it never really occurred to me to write a novel. And then a few years ago, my husband and I were lying on a beach in Cancun on vacation. And I was reading a Jody Pico book, as I pretty much always do. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, I, I love the way she writes. I love the fact that all of her books are different. So she's one of my two favorite authors, the other being Lisa Genova, who wrote Still Alice and Inside oh, the yeah. O'Briens and Left Neglect, and I could go on about oh, her yeah. forever. Oh, yeah. And as I was thinking about it, I thought if I could marry the two styles and the two uh, types of things that they write about, I could really have something that would go along with my education, my training, and my experience. And, you know, my husband and I stood up, take a walk on the beach, and I just blurted out, I think I want to write a book. And I was 99% sure he was going to say, oh, sure, in all your spare time, you're going to write a book. But he didn't. He said, so write a book. And for the next hour that we walked on the beach, we came up with the skeleton of this story. Wow. Yeah, it just happened. There was no real forethought to it at all. Wow. <laughs> Well, they're going to talk more about your writing because I find it fascinating. You're right, and you're obviously a lot of people. I suspect being at home with COVID, uh, hanging in the hanging in the air outside, are considering writing that novel they've been intending to get to. But unlike you, they actually they haven't even begun to start. So we'll talk more about that. But let's. I want to talk a little bit first about uh, about your genetic counseling work and about your your um, your work at the university uh, in in leadership in this area. You you've been in the field a very long time. <laughs> And yes, I, ancient. Uh, I get it. Yeah, you know, it's a compliment. It's, it's you, you can never do it right, but it's a, <laughs> experience is a good thing. Um, right. But you know, I know that the um, some changes in you know genetics generally for those of us who are really don't know the field and don't know anything about it. Um, you know, the the the, the kind of the, the bells that go off that we hear about are things like the Human Genome Project, the fact that there was breast cancer propensity gene identification, the data analysis that's possible from massive data sets and just basically big data and computing power that we didn't have before. Right. Angelina Jolie, Jurassic Park, OJ Simpson, and maybe now CRISPR, and even right. uh, and even the the kind of need with. Uh, you know, the need for international scientific cooperation on researching the DNA of the coronavirus. Um, right. I mean, there's just so much 
in our lives that have radically changed because of genetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've, you've, and you've been around for all of it. You've been in a, pro- in a profession that's ostensibly connecting, you know, the, the science to people for a very long time. So I'm curious about um, what changes you've seen. Yeah. From your well, and I would add to your list biobanks that have developed projects like All of Me and others around the country and around the world that seek to collect the whole genomes of, you know, millions of people to try to establish more information. I mean, we've discovered a lot and we've not discovered a lot, right? So throughout, when I started my career, the theory was that every human being had approximately 100,000 genes. Now we know okay. it's probably more like 20 to 25,000 genes, much, much smaller than we thought. But wow. we, there's still a lot that we don't know about. And people will always ask about genetic testing and, well, can I just you know, have my genes tested? And it's, it's just not that easy. Um, you know, it's not like what you see on Criminal Minds and other shows like that where they have your DNA back in 30 seconds and, and they know everything about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another thing I was going to mention. Or Westworld, where they go in and take the they take the DNA and they can they can anticipate your entire future. But right. the you you you're, but the impact you've seen, the changes in the field you've seen over the um, yeah over your well career. the other the big thing right now is direct to consumer genetic testing. So yes. you know companies like Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry dot com and there's a number of others, which have I think great potential ultimately to tell us about our health. Right now, I don't don't think we're quite there yet, but it is interesting to me that even over Thanksgiving dinner, I'll have relatives asking me, you know, what do you think about 23andMe? We're going to do it. You know, it's fun. And I have to always say, what, what's fun exactly about that? And the problem with a lot of them, as you mentioned, uh, breast cancer susceptibility genes and, and other cancer genes those kinds of things can come out of direct-to-consumer testing. So you may go in there thinking, oh, it'll be fun to find out if, I don't know, I can uh, metabolize certain um, medications or, you know, mm-hmm. am I better at sprints or at long-term running? Or <laughs> There are right. all different things that they say they can tell you. But what you may, depending upon what box boxes you tick off on the order form, you may end up with information like, I have a mutation in BRCA1 or 2, which means I have a much higher risk for certain kinds of cancers. Or I might find out that I have a risk susceptibility for Alzheimer's that's much higher than average. Did I really want to know that information? Did I go in asking for that? Maybe not. So that's, and that's where a, genetic and that's a major come. challenge, right? That's a, mm-hmm. that that is that that is where, and I guess maybe this is this is a good starting point. Is I assume that that's part that's a big part of what genetic counseling is doing is is actually kind of uh, um, um, narrowing <laughs> the narrowing the field of genetics, which is yeah. which can be can feel like all encompassing. Yes, yes, that's very much true. So. I worked in a cancer center for many, many years, um, a few of them culminating in, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so we saw a lot of patients with a lot of rare cancers and different kinds of family histories. And the challenge always was trying to get people to understand that it wasn't one single thing we could test for, but it also wasn't the whole gamut of everything we would test for. So the art of it was in the risk assessment. It was in what's going on in you, what's going on in your family. What does that make us think of from a genetic standpoint? And therefore, what should we test for? Well, talk about that a little bit, because I, I, I know, and I do want you to basically explain genetic counseling, but, okay. but what you're raising for me right there is, is a kind of a key thing that my very limited understanding of what genetic counselors do is that at some core level, what it seems to me that what I hear genetic counselors do is, is talk about numbers, odds, probabilities, and risk mm-hmm. um, in a way that nothing else in science does. Like so much of science is like, yes, no true, false, uh, you know, theory proven, theory denied. Uh, and yet somehow with genetics, it seems like the whole thing is just like a poker game. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say the whole thing, but that is a big part of it. So there is an art and a science to genetic counseling, as you might imagine. And a lot of it is education. So a lot of my job is to teach people what they need to know to sure. make informed decisions about their health care. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is the, the art of how do I help that person frame this information in a way that is understandable, comfortable, fits with their values and culture. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot about it that requires nuance and not just numbers. Well, give an example of that. Give an example of something where maybe there's a disconnect between information that maybe a client would need and like, you know, and the and and the client's culture. Mm. Uh well, Certainly, when you're talking to prenatal patients, those who are mm-hmm. either pregnant or at least maybe hoping to be, and you're discussing something to do with the increased risk, let's say, for having a child with a certain genetic disorder. Mm-hmm. And there may be all sorts of cultural things. For example, actually, I have a better example than that. Okay. Saw a couple once a long time ago in a pediatrics clinic, they had a three-year-old daughter with classic signs of Tay-Sachs disease, which is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that causes death by about age five. It's very, very sad. Mm-hmm. And no one had tested this little girl for Tay-Sachs because it's one of these so-called Jewish genetic diseases. Mm-hmm. And this family was from Pakistan. And so nobody thought that she could have Tay-Sachs, even though she had every classic sign of it. Mm-hmm. And the couple was, like I said, from Pakistan. The mother spoke no English. The father spoke enough English that we could speak with him. Major mistake, we didn't ask for an interpreter. And we just let the husband mm-hmm. interpret for his wife. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that when the three-year-old was diagnosed, the wife was already 12 weeks pregnant with their second child. So they didn't have a chance to think about whether they would undertake another pregnancy. There it was. Mm -hmm. And we don't know whether the husband was telling his wife any of the things we were telling him, or at least with any accuracy, very paternalistic culture. And this was also, oh, wow, 25 years ago or more. Right. And... She ended up having prenatal testing on the second pregnancy, found out it was affected, and had the baby anyway, which she has every right to do, and and many people might. Mm -hmm. But we really don't, never felt comfortable that she understood. And even if she did, was she able to make that decision or was that her husband's decision? Mm -hmm. And all of that kind of thing will come out in your counseling session generally. Mm-hmm. But it's much, much harder when it's a different culture and a different language. Sure. sure. So so um, talk a little bit. As I was researching uh, genetic counseling, I, I took a look at the uh, the national organization that I think you've held several positions in and yes. are pretty deeply involved in. And I, I just glanced at the kind of the, the breakdown of what genetic counselor kind of... Uh, categories or areas are and i know one of them obviously the one that jumps out is prenatal that seems mm-hmm. like the one that's maybe that maybe even why were historically um you know there that people would have gotten involved but yeah. what what are how would you break down genetic counseling in terms of what what are the major areas that genetic counselors work in these days ah okay yeah when i started you're absolutely right when i started in this field in the late 1980s you had a choice of doing prenatal genetic counseling or pediatrics, or if you were really lucky, both. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now, cancer genetics is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And there are other subfields that are becoming bigger and bigger. Cardiovascular genetics, neurogenetics, ocular genetics, laboratory. There are a lot of genetic counselors who, like Shelley, work in industry. Mm-hmm. And they, they do a lot of different things, you know, they, well, so when, so when a, so even for, for something like cancer, so is even the genetics counseling aspects of working with 
cancer patients or, or cancer risk patients at the prenatal level, or is that no. like you've gotten diagnosed with cancer and then maybe, and that even then you'll be meeting with a genetic counselor? Correct. Yes. So okay. a cancer genetic counselor is going to meet either with the cancer patient or the family member of a cancer patient or both Got it. to Got discuss it. what's going on in the family, whether it looks like there may be a hereditary cancer syndrome and where do you go from there? And the reason for this is at least partially because of the incredibly cool new types of treatments that we have for mm -hmm. cancers that involve genetic material. <laughs> well, yes and no. So it depends on what type of genetics you're talking about. I know that sounds okay. really funny, but we have our, our germline genes that are passed from parent mm -hmm. to child to grandchild. And then we have our somatic genes, which mm -hmm. are in our somatic cells, which are anything other than our germ cells. So what I mean is, if you have a cancer diagnosis and you have a family history of cancer, your genetic counselor may say, there's a possibility you may have X or Y syndrome in your family that you may have, your siblings may have, your children may have, we can do genetic testing and figure this all out. There's another whole part of it with the somatic genetics that says, okay, you have a lung cancer. We can test the genetics of the tumor tissue, which are not necessarily and very often not the same as your constitutional genetics. But knowing that about the tumor allows us to tweak the treatment and make it the most appropriate we can so that we're not treating you with a toxic drug that isn't going to work. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So that's that explains the, the absolute explosion in the number of the, yes. the need for genetic counselors. But I also happen to know that there's a shortage of genetic counselors. So right. can you talk about that a little bit? Why aren't there enough genetic counselors? Today? Right. It's a great question. Mostly because while there are more genetic counseling training programs, you know, master's level programs around the country and in fact around the world than ever before, each program doesn't take that many students. The biggest programs, and there's only a couple of them, take 25 students. The rest all take anywhere from five to maybe 15 per year. Mm -hmm. And there are 50 programs. So, and I never stop to add it up because every program takes a different number of students, but it may be four to 500 new genetic counselors graduate every year. Maybe that's probably an overestimate. So why don't they take more? Because of the clinical rotation opportunities in order to graduate from a genetic counseling program, you need to do a number of clinical rotations in pediatrics clinics, prenatal clinics, cancer clinics, cardiogenetics clinics, et cetera. And you need to be supervised by certified genetic counselors. And so the limiting factor in any program typically is the number of clinical placements they placements. can offer. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's growing organically and it has to grow organically based on those constraints. It does. And, you know, you had asked before about how the field has changed over the years. And that's a piece of it, too. So way back when, mm -hmm. everybody who, let's say every pregnant woman who was thinking about having an amniocentesis would go to a genetic counselor and learn everything there was to know about the amnio in terms of the procedure itself and why do it, what it would test for, what it wouldn't, what they would do with the information once they had it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then after the results came back, they would meet with the genetic counselor again to learn about the results. Mm -hmm. That unfortunately has become an untenable model because you're right, there are not enough genetic counselors for all the patients in the country who are doing this kind of thing, especially in more rural areas where there just aren't academic medical centers where genetic counselors tend to be and so forth. So, and, and the amount of testing we can do has changed so much mm -hmm. that now the model, at least generally speaking, is do your cell-free DNA testing or your amniocentesis. And if the results have any kind of problem, then the genetic counselor comes in on the back end hmm. to, to teach patients what all of that is about and help them figure out what would be the right decision for them in terms of what to do next. Got it. So, so one of the issues certainly coming from that kind of pressure, I assume, would be for there to be non-genetic trained individuals talking to patients about genetics. Right. How do you how do you feel about that? 
<laughs> uh, well, this it's a tricky one, and it's something that we as a profession have talked about many times, because there are certain things that probably really only genetic counselors can do. For example, having the time to spend you know an hour to an hour and a half with each patient to go through all these details, whereas your typical physician or nurse has, what, seven minutes or something? So that's a piece of the problem. On the other hand, because we don't have enough genetic counselors to do this, we know that more and more individuals are going to be counseled in whatever manner that takes by non-genetics professionals. And so since it's going to happen, what we have decided, I think most of our profession has decided, is to get on the train even if we can't drive the train, we can at least help in terms of how should the information be given and, mm-hmm. and not, in a sense, stand on our high horses and, and say, right. forget it, we're not getting involved. Right. So, for example, Shelly and I and two other genetic counselors just finished writing a practice resource that will be published in the Journal of Genetic Counseling on how healthcare providers who are not genetic counselors can counsel their patients through genetic testing for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. So providing all that information in one document that says, if you haven't done this before, or you're not that comfortable with it, here's how to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So t- talk, let's talk a little bit about um, intellectual property, because mm-hmm. I know uh, both both uh, um, genetics, for, for better or for worse, genetics is kind of at the spear tip of a lot of Supreme Court decisions and probably just politics in terms of what, um, for lack of a better phrase, ideas we can own. And I know that there are are three decisions that I I came up with as I was looking in to talk to you, but one of them obviously is the famous one, the the Myriad genetics case. The the 2012 case I had heard of, but I didn't realize, I didn't, I I guess I'd heard of, but Myriad kind of embodied it. But the original decision was the 2012 case the Mayo Collaborative Services versus Prometheus Labs case that said that that um, genetics are that that a patent was invalidated because it relied on a law of nature, and that was kind mm. of the, laid the groundwork for the the 2013, a year later case with it, which is the Myriad Genetics case that just right. flat out said human genes can't be patented, mm-hmm. and they said that because the human genes are a product of nature. And then in 2014, there was a case that, um, although it didn't really spoke, focus on genes, actually has an imp, has uh, implicates. Um, it implicates seems to implicate the field a lot, from what I can tell. This Alice Corporation case about a, that was about a financial program that was basically about software, and that you hmm. can't patent a financial trading program because the program was an abstract idea. And it seems like there's a lot of this idea that, uh, that the, the court applying the standard of an abstract idea to genetics is something that they they um, they may be is the path that they're heading down. So the path from the Supreme Court seems to be this a move a movement away from allowing there to be um, away from uh, from there to be uh, owned genetic information. And I know that you uh, like a good fight. It's obvious that you like a good fight, both because of your the drama in your novel and because of your other book, which is called Ethical Dilemmas in Genetics and Genetic Counseling. Um, so I guess I'm curious, where where do you think, I mean, you could talk about the Supreme Court's cases if you like, but I'm more interested just hearing you know, where you think the U.S. should draw the line in terms of owning information or owning genetic information. Yeah. The problem with anybody having a patent on genes is that then they, whoever they are, say it's a, a laboratory like Myriad, they have exclusive rights to do the testing. And so for a good number of years, basically from 1996 to 2013, Myriad was the only laboratory doing commercial testing for BRCA1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And they did it very, very well. I don't have a complaint about that. But they then had the only database of all the different mutations that can occur and with what frequency and in what populations. And so mm-hmm. nobody else could do it. And that, of course, from a financial perspective, was a difficult thing because if they're the only ones doing it, they set the pricing. Mm-hmm. And in June of 2013, when the Supreme Court said no more, you know, we're, we're withdrawing the patent, mm-hmm. literally within three 
hours, we as genetic counselors all had a dozen or more emails from other laboratories that had just been waiting for this decision and they knew they had testing available. And so now we have testing all over the place, some better than others, of course, but most of these labs are sharing their data. And so we have a much more robust set of information, not just in the US, but around the world. So we can help a lot. So uh, that sounds silly, but you know, many times when we do genetic testing, we find what's called a variant of uncertain significance, which is a little stretch of DNA that isn't necessarily the normal, but isn't known to be abnormal either. And it, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to tell what it means until you have a lot more data. So mm-hmm. the more data you have collected already, the less this happens. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me patenting human genes is just philosophically wrong in my mind, but it also just practically doesn't make any sense and is detrimental to our knowledge mm-hmm. base. Mm-hmm. Well, I generally agree with you. I would say that the the the, the people I w- who would probably argue the other side or have argued it, and I know that there have been a couple of congressional bills, bills that both in the House or the Senate that, that have attempted to overturn that that the mm-hmm. um, the human genes can't be patented. The, their argument typically is, and this is this is a, a, a catchword for the right, which is uh, innovation is stifled when you don't allow people to own things because people are like, well, if I can't make money from it, why would I do it? And there, um, there's there's some. I know that there was uh, hanging in the hanging in the back, uh, you know, in the kind of in the smoky back uh, room logic of of some of these bills was China and the idea that mm-hmm. in China there 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 are no limitations on what you can own. So obviously with the CRISPR maybe mm-hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> case recently, I think that was highlighted even more. But yeah. it seems it seems like you're saying that we're in a kind of a good place right now with with how we've defined what can be and what can't be patented and this is kind of a this is kind of a happy balance we've found right now or are you thinking that there's if you were able to ma- wave your magic wand would you <laughs> have it be defined a little differently I have to admit this is not something that I spend a lot of time thinking about okay. in my <laughs> specific line of work uh-huh. I would say you know just my my gut instinct is that we are in a pretty good place right now but I also don't feel like I'm necessarily educated enough on that particular topic to give you a thorough answer. Well, it sounds it sounds like you're saying that the really the, all that really matters is it's just the it's just the price of getting the testing and the information. That's the effect on the the, the clients that a genetic counselor uh, would well, speak. Well, you know, with. that's a piece of it, but it's a lot more of that because the more data we have, the more we understand. For example, mm. the a good percentage of the data that we always had up until recently, anyway on cancer genes was from Caucasian European people or Caucasian people of European descent anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a patient in front of you who is from, I don't know, Indonesia and Mm -hmm. presents with one of these variants of uncertain significance, we don't have enough data to try to Mm -hmm. figure out in a different population what that means. Mm-hmm. So, and if we had enough data, that would be the equivalent of saying, well, we have so many examples of this that we can kind of find yeah. what a normal, the, the peak of the normal curve somewhere of that, of what, or yeah, or, I mean, it's not really a is. curve, but, but yes, okay. I see what you're saying. And yeah, the more information we have, the better. And yeah. it is true that there's really, not much of a differential between one race and another, genetically speaking. I mean, we have something like 98% of our DNA in common with, I don't know, chimpanzees, I think. Yeah, right. And 60% in common with bananas. Right. So if you think about that, how different could we really be as human beings from each other? The answer is not much. Right. And it's not genet- it's not racially based, really. Mm-hmm. But there are populations of people, mostly because of geography and the way populations had been isolated at different times in their history. So before I had mentioned Jewish genetic diseases, there's nothing mm-hmm. magical. There's no difference just because of the religion you practice, but it has to do with a population of people who was either geographically or socially isolated 
for many periods of time and how then any mutation within that population ends up being overrepresented because there isn't admixture, or at least not as much admixture with other populations. Uh, interesting. Very Does that make interesting. Sense? Yeah, that makes total mm-hmm. sense. Fascinating. Yeah. We'll talk about that. You're kind of raising this idea of international or kind of around the world. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. I'm curious about how genetic counseling is treated in other countries. Is this something that the U.S. is way ahead on? Is this something that everybody's doing? Do other countries like in France and the U.K. with national health programs, are they including genetics counseling? Or is this something that's still kind of so cutting edge, it's really just being introduced with, you know, in certain small, small bubbles? Well, it kind of depends on which bubble you're talking about. So there's plenty of genetic counseling going on around the world, certainly in Canada, in Europe, and to some extent, in the Middle East. I mean, I know there are genetic counselors in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen and other places. They practice differently because mm-hmm. it's a more uh, paternalistic society, sure. I would sure. say. And, sure. and and religion also, I'm sure. Yes. It's just, it's, yes. I mean, this is where culture cannot be disentwined from the, from, from the I have to think it's deeply involved in Can genetic counseling. I would have to. I would have to think that very, very much is so. deeply entwined very much so. So with culture. It is absolutely so. It in many different ways. So whether you're talking about whether a couple with um, with a known fetal abnormality is going to consider terminating that pregnancy, or whether a person with a genetic disorder is going to be willing to tell family members about it. You know, there's mm-hmm. always the issue of guilt and shame mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. keeping things within a family and so forth. So, and, and there are a lot of cultures in the world who still intentionally marry within their own families, whether it's for wealth or, um, you know, to keep the what they might say is the um, strong genetic component. You know, if it's a healthy family, keep it within the family, which is actually completely... yes the opposite of what you want to do. Um, But these are culturally ingrained practices for, you know, thousands of years. And so the whole process may be very, very different in other countries, but it certainly exists. And there are now genetic counseling training programs in the UK, in Australia, in uh, Canada, certainly, I mean, around the world. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's still probably primarily in the U.S. and Canada, but it's it's growing, for sure. Got it. Got it. Well, so let's shift a little and talk a little bit about your professional background and your work. What, what, what I know that you were a practicing genetic counselor, and you've now shifted to being an academic director. Yes. Uh, what, what prompted that move? <laughs> it's something that I actually always wanted to do throughout my entire career, and I don't really recall why I decided I wanted to do that, but I always did, and it just took me 30 years <laughs> to be in the right position, both geographically and clinically, to get to that point where, where it worked out for me. Okay. Well, describe your genetic counseling training program and how, it, how it's different maybe from others. Sure. So our program is all online. So we teach in an online format such that our students who are with us for two years really 21 months. It's two academic years in the intervening summer, which is true of almost every program. Mm-hmm. Um, they come to our campus four times total at the beginning of each fall semester and each spring semester for a weekend of academic information and orientation and socializing and so forth. It's a, um, experiential learning and academic learning. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time, Everything is online. Our courses are online. We do some synchronous and some asynchronously, meaning sometimes we're all together in an evening mm-hmm. and, and discussing something, and other mm-hmm. times we have recorded lectures that are mm-hmm. in their learning management system, and they watch them when they're ready. They do their assignments either on their own or in groups, but it's all done virtually mm-hmm. so that we have students from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it allows people, certainly the the diversity of being all around the country, but also people who are not able to move for two years to go to graduate school because they have jobs or they have children or they have whatever commitments in their communities. Sure. 
And they a major still... theme of this podcast is we talk a lot about the the obvious, you know, overwhelming shift to online learning just because of mm. its convenience. So that's yes. a, that's a that's an that's an easy one for, for yes. And what's nice about that, yes, is we we allow students who otherwise would not have been able yep. to be genetic counselors mm-hmm. to be genetic counselors. Right. We'll talk about that a little bit. Who who do you attract? What is the what are what would you say is it's because it's a graduate program, right? It's a master's yes. degree. What's the what what's the what the ideal and maybe the normal or even the range of of types of uh, students that you attract in terms of backgrounds? Ah, I wouldn't say there's an ideal. I would okay. say our average student is probably in her late twenties ish. So we have some people right out of school, and some people who've been doing other things for many years. Some of them have been in PhD programs. Some of them have gone to medical school. Some have been teachers, you know, of biology or whatever for many years. Mm -hmm. So it's a really diverse group, which is fun. Um, Mostly female because our profession Mm -hmm. is mostly female, despite our best efforts to change that. Our incoming class for the fall does have two men in it. I'm very excited about that. In our field, it's another question male. I have for you, but I'm and I'm assuming yeah. I, I I was going to take a deep dive into the question, but I think it's pretty obvious probably why that's the case. Is it just because it harkens back to a more sexist era when prenatal ish things were a women's thing? Is that where that comes from, you or know, is there something it, else going on? That's a, a very reasonable theory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. My okay. suspicion is that it's more about two things. One. The word counseling, right? And so back when this field was created in the late 60s, I think counseling was more considered a women's thing. Not that there weren't plenty of male psychiatrists and and social workers, but it was more a female-dominated field in counseling. The second thing, and this has changed, thankfully, over the years, but it certainly did not start out as a particularly good way to make a good living. (laughs) You did not go into genetic counseling to make money. And so back in an era when it was at least more typically the man who raised the money in the family, you know, this was not a Wall Street salary kind of job. I got it. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. And that has changed, thankfully. Totally makes sense. All right. Keep describing your program, though. I didn't mean to derail you. I want you to get (laughs) into it a little more. That's okay. So because we have students from all over the country, we provide them, to the best of our ability, the availability of clinical rotations around the country. So, you know, those are not virtual. No, no, no. Well, at the moment they are only because of COVID, but in general, no. And so, you know, we have a student, for example, who lives in New Mexico and, you know, our program's in Massachusetts, but she comes to campus for those four times I was telling you about. And in the meantime is doing her clinical rotations in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we have three students in Southern California. We have three in the Chicago area. We have a few in the Baltimore, Philadelphia kind of area. And so we accommodate them as best we can wherever they are. We ha- In our first class, we had a student who was from North Carolina, but really wanted to see other parts of the country. She said to us, I really want to go to St. Jude's in Memphis. So she went to St. Jude's in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And, and liked it you so much are involved, she, and the, so it's literally uh, everywhere in the country. I mean, this can't. It, there, it's not like people have to go to certain research universities or no. research school. It, it, it's it's anywhere. Well, you know, for uh, um, it's anywhere that has board certified genetic counselors who can act as supervisors. So there mm-hmm. need to be people there who are willing and able, mm-hmm. and they need to have availability. So there are plenty of places in the country, Massachusetts being one of them. I mean, there are three master's level genetic counseling training programs in Boston. Mm -hmm. So there we are in Springfield. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we do have some students who are from New England. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to get them into placements anywhere in the Mm -hmm. Boston area or even up to Maine because there are three programs already there. Um, So and the same thing is true in the Baltimore, D.C. area. And others mm-hmm. throughout the country. So it's it, we all have to work collegially to try to accommodate all of our students. But mm-hmm. we tell all of the people who apply to our program to begin with before they're accepted, if you are accepted to our program, we promise you we'll do our very best to get you where you want to be. But it's not entirely up to us. And so we cannot promise that. And you may need to go elsewhere. 
Whereas a program okay. that's on ground and is always in, let's say, Philadelphia, has yep. its set 30 to 40 clinical rotation sites, yep. and that's yep. where their students go. Yep. They don't yep. have to set up these new affiliation agreements you know, everywhere to accommodate students. So it's a challenge for us, but mm-hmm. we take it very seriously, and we want our students to be able to be from pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So you're not seeing patients at all anymore? I'm not. Mm-mm. So do you miss patient care? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I, I did... I loved seeing patients for many, many years. There were things about it that got a little uh, repetitive. Uh And there were certain issues about seeing patients. It wasn't really the patients. It was all of the prep work and the follow-up work and the paperwork and the insurance hassles and and all of that I don't miss. But the actual interaction with patients and feeling like I'm making a difference in their lives, that I do miss. And, you know, I had people in my life always, who would say to me, I, I don't know how you do what you do. How do you deal with patients terminating pregnancies? How do you deal with patients who have stage four cancer diagnoses? And my answer to them always was that these people are going through what they're going through, whether I'm there or not. If I can make mm-hmm. it a little easier for them, then I've done a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 it's very clear based on anyone who reads your novel, and I'm not going to give away anything, but I will say it's very clear that you have a very deep connection with patients and patients' experiences. So, oh, um, it's, it's, and, and I guess that's, and I guess that's what I, I, would like to kind of talk a little bit about as well as your writing. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, again, I'm not going no spoilers. I'm good at, I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, I want everyone to enjoy the novel on their own, but the, it's need, needless to say the novel is loaded with a, a, a lot of drama and it was made even more real to me in my experience reading it. It was the novel worked even better because I knew that you were a professional in mm. genetics and um, and somehow that was, I don't know, it was some, the, you know, the author's background was affecting my, my reading of it and making it more enjoyable. Um, did it feel but more I'm curious authentic? about your process a little bit, your process for the plot character setting. Um, how, how did you, how did you write this? <laughs> uh, well, you know, having not written a novel before, you know, the <laughs> ethics book was not a novel. Um, right. I really didn't know what my process should be. And I have a good friend who's kind of my number one cheerleader. And she listened to me all the time and she would give me advice. And one of the most important things she said to me was write an outline, just what, what's each chapter going to be about? And then go back up to the top and write a few sentences about each one. And then go back up to the top and write a few more sentences about each one. Mm. And before you know it, you know, you'll have your chapters. And boy, was she right. Because I, I outlined it enough that I had a sense of where I was going so that I would make sure that I would not stray too far from the topics. Mm-hmm. But I didn't entirely know where what I was thinking I was going to accomplish with this until I made that very, very detailed outline. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then it basically wrote itself. And every time I finished a chapter, I emailed it to my sister, who is the president of my fan club and always was. And every time she would respond with, damn it, you made me cry again. Uh-huh. <laughs> every uh-huh. chapter I'm pulling out the mm-hmm. tissues. Um, it's hard not to. It's pretty powerful <laughs> stuff. Thank you. It's powerful. The Well, so um, well, t- talk about the, uh, um, you know, your experience of, 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 of character development in particular. I mean, I always like to ask this question of writers. Who is your favorite character? Hmm. That's a great question. I think I would need a lot of time to think about. I I know that's I why I didn't tell you in advance. Yeah, so you that have, was you would sneaky. have to just you'd have to make it up on the spot and see yeah. what you come up Oosh, with. That was that was very sneaky. Um, <laughs> wow. You, know, you I, can always I, take the diplomatically careful response and say all of them, but I was I was oh that's not that you. can't be right. It's more fun to just. Go <laughs> um, I can probably tell you about a couple of my favorite books. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) One of my favorites is called Inside the O'Briens. That was written by Lisa Genova. Um, She is a Harvard-trained PhD neuroscientist Mm -hmm. and yet writes novels. And she was such a big inspiration to me because here she is writing these books about such deep 
uh, very gut-wrenching topics. Like Still Alice was about early onset Alzheimer's and Inside the O'Briens is about Huntington's disease, which, you know, for people who don't know is a degenerative neuromuscular disorder that has been described as a combination of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. Mm. So if you can think of anything mm-hmm. that horrible. Mm. Um, and the story is of a family who finds out that they, some of them, have Huntington's. And what do they do about it? But it is a novel. It is not a science book. It's not a, it's not a research story. It is simply a novel about a family and what mm-hmm. they go through. And I just was mesmerized by that book. In fact, I used it as an assignment for my students last year for a book group that we mm-hmm. did together. And it was just wonderful to pick apart these characters and think about their motivations and why they do what they do. That was a big inspiration to me. Yeah, I mean, as a former English teacher, this is this is this is not a hard sell for me. Is that I, <laughs> uh, I find that narrative is a far better way to teach than almost anything else, and and, and conveying ideas. Uh, and I'm curious how much of your writing the novel was driven by that. Was driven by? I mean, you've given the Cancun story, which I still can visualize, and I'm kind of really envious of, um, <laughs> just because I can't go to Cancun right now. But it, the uh, <laughs> but I'm curious how much of it was, you know, kind of an intentional professional act, like you know, it's. De- I mean, th- I'm not giving anything away to say, you, you know, you've said in many places publicly that you know the the book obviously is tied to your professional experience in genetics. But I'm curious how much of it was an intentional on that part, and then how much of it just became. A, an you know an an adventure in in character setting theme yeah and, you know and, it, it was a lot of writing. both I mean certainly yeah, people say write what you know and it certainly is a lot easier to write about a topic that you know about but also one that you feel passionate about you know I could probably do a lot of research and and write a murder mystery but it doesn't interest <laughs> me the same way right. um, but also I find that the general public has very little to no idea what genetics is or how it works. Even my family members that I've been talking to for 30 plus years about genetics still don't know the difference between a gene and a chromosome. And that is very basic, but not to most people, right? So I thought if I could make it accessible to the average person, that would be a victory in itself. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Makes sense. It's a good goal. So, ta- give some advice to aspiring writers and and, mm. and maybe uh, um, you know maybe what pe- aspiring writers and experienced writers. I mean, what what would you advise or what would you uh, what would advice would you have in terms of uh, of starting or getting started or or kind of really getting back to it? Yeah. Well, first, I would say, don't be afraid. If you want to do it, do it. Don't let anybody tell you you don't have time. If I can make time, you can make time. And you know, if you're the parent of several small children, maybe that's really not true. I've been there. Um, but if you want to do it, it becomes a labor of love. And people used to say to me, including my own kids, it's Saturday. Why are you working? Like, you don't understand. This isn't work to me. I love this. Right. Right. So, so what's the next book going to be about? Well, I was working on the outline yesterday, coincidentally. And, um, I think this one is going to be more a story of the uh, sort of psychic pull between confidentiality and duty to warn mm-hmm. in the area hmm. of genetics. What what incredibly narrow. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it won't, that it is, won't feel that like that in That is fascinating. <laughs> you write an entire novel about that incredibly. I'm like, isn't that a one sentence answer? <laughs> It's really not. It's really much more nuanced than that. And, Hmm. you know, I do have a little bit of experience with ethics and and I teach an ethics course now to my students. And, you know, it's really what do you do when you have information that you probably came upon in not the best way? And maybe you shouldn't have this information. But now that you do and you know that you could protect people if they knew it, too. Mm-hmm. but you're not really supposed to tell them because you're not really supposed to know. Yeah. What do you do about that? Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Fun. Thank you. This is <laughs> fun, fun. Well, this has been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it really has. I'm so glad you came on. You you came on to talk, and I want to I want to talk more uh, uh, more. But I I I don't want to uh, I don't I know we uh, we we have time constraints, so I don't want to go too too long. Um, but I you know I usually end by asking um, by asking a couple of things. One is, did I miss anything? Is there anything else that you should, that that 
I should have asked her that you uh, that you that's it, that maybe you wanted to get to him. I didn't get you give you a chance to get to. Hmm. No, I don't. Nothing think hanging so. in the background. Good. I'm complete. Yeah. I like that. I like to be thorough. And you then are. the other thing I like to ask is if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what do you recommend? Yes. Oh yes, please do. You can email me at info at janiceberliner.com. Mm-hmm. So it's J-A-N-I-C-E-B-E-R-L-I-N-E-R. You can also go on my website, which is very simply janisberliner.com. There's information about my novel, which is called Brooks Promise, as well as the ethics book we mentioned before, Ethical Dilemmas in Genetics and Genetic Counseling. And um, you can contact me. And I'm so happy to hear from any of you. Book is available on Amazon. Go to it. Great. Well, wonderful. Well, Janice Berliner, thanks for joining me today. Um, it's a cool, rainy Sunday morning in Chicago, so I hope where you are, it's warm, sunny, and maybe you're oh, on a beach. Thank you. Well, no, not on a beach. Although <laughs> I live in New Jersey and we do have beautiful beaches, but okay. um, I you didn't make this. You didn't go to Cancun before the lockdown and get stuck there. No, 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 no. That was. Uh, Three years ago, four years okay. ago, I forget exactly. Um, it is beautiful here today. It's breezy and sunny and cool. I'm not outside, but I would guess it's maybe 60. Oh, lovely. Perfect. No, it's perfect well, enjoy- well I, I appreciate you giving me some time on this Sunday morning. It's really, it's oh, really great. Thank you for uh, having so me. Much. It was such a pleasure. That's great. Well, that's it for this fortnight. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And as always, if you like the show, please subscribe. And even more valuable, please take a second and rate us on Apple Podcasts because that's how their algorithm works. And obviously, even more, maybe even more old school, it, the best thing you can really do if you like the podcast is tell somebody else and spread the word. Uh, I'd like to thank Tommy Settle and Ted Enley for the theme music and I would love it if you would join me in a fortnight for another conversation about education and where it's going.